A note before we begin. This episode contains discussions of child abductions and suicide. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, don't hesitate to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. There is help. Today's case is still open and active. If you have information that can help, resources can be found at the end of this episode. When we hear the words child abduction, certain images come to mind. A kid taken off the street while walking home alone. A child coaxed away from their parents at a crowded mall. An infant stolen from their bed in the middle of the night. These are the abductions that make headlines, but they're also the rarest. The majority of kidnapped children know their abductor. In fact, according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, in 2020, 63% of all Amber Alerts were the result of family abductions. And when it comes to family abductions, there's a myth that guides the way many of us think, that the cases are inherently less dangerous, because if a child is with a relative, they must be somewhat safe. But what happens when a family doesn't have your best interests at heart? What if they don't deserve your trust at all? I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a six-year-old boy who went on a surprise vacation with his mother and was never seen again. His disappearance baffled investigators and left his family shattered, confused, and longing for answers. His name is Timothy Pitson. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Liquid IV. Feeling thirsty? You might already be dehydrated. Enter Liquid IV. Behind every great-tasting sip is a science-backed formula of electrolytes and nutrients made to quickly replenish fluids lost from sweat. Every stick is powered by three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink. Redefine the refresh with Liquid IV. Also available in sugar-free. Tear. Pour. Live. More. Visit us at liquidiv.com. Trust can be a fickle thing. Some dole it out in heaps. 
others sparingly. But whichever camp you fall into, the fact is, what happened to Timothy Pitson could shake anyone's trust. There's a lot we know about the day Timothy went missing. We know who took him, we know when and how, but we don't know why, and we don't know where he is. Timothy's story starts in Aurora, Illinois, a suburb just outside of Chicago. It's the second largest city in the state, but it still has a wholesome, small-town feel to it. It's generally considered safe, good schools, plenty of opportunities, the kind of place where young couples settle down and start a new chapter in their lives. After Amy Fry Pitson and Jim Pitson moved to Aurora in the early 2000s, they experience a lot of firsts in the city. They get married, they buy a house, and in October 2004, they have a child, their son, Timothy. Amy's 36 at the time, Jim's 32. Raising a kid has its challenges, but Timothy is the glue that holds the family together. Both parents dote on him, watching him grow from an infant to a toddler to a kindergartner. By 2011, the family has settled into a comfortable routine. Every weekday, Amy drives Timothy to school at 8 a.m., Jim picks him up a couple hours later at 10.30 when his classes end. But the morning of Wednesday, May 11th, 2011 is different. Amy isn't feeling well. She suffers from bouts of vertigo and appears to be experiencing an attack. Jim doesn't think it's a good idea for her to drive, so he offers to take Timothy to school and drop Amy off at work. Amy agrees to the plan, they all pile into the family Jeep, and a few minutes later, they pull up to Greenman Elementary. Timothy hops out of the car, with his Spider-Man backpack strapped to his shoulders. He tells his parents he loves them, then races towards the school entrance. Timothy has a distinctive run, a cute waddling gait that Jim thinks resembles a chubby old man. It's always funny. Timothy is funny. Jim can't help but smile as he and his wife drive away from the school. Next, Jim takes Amy to work. It's a quick trip because the property management company that Amy works for is only three blocks from their house. They kiss goodbye, exchange their I love yous, and Amy heads into the building. These casual displays of affection might not seem like much to you, but they're significant to Jim. He and Amy have been fighting lately, their most recent argument happened about a week ago, after Amy and a friend went to the Bahamas for her birthday and didn't invite him. Their marriage has never been perfect, but since that last fight, their relationship has mostly been okay, and that's what Jim chooses to focus on. After dropping Amy off, he goes to his office at a design and construction firm. He works until it's time to pick Timothy up. Jim returns to Greenman Elementary at 10.30 a.m., like he always does, but the teacher at the front desk is surprised to see him. She tells Jim Timothy isn't here. Amy picked him up over two hours ago. According to Jim, he's not immediately alarmed. He's mostly just confused. He calls Amy to see what's going on, but she doesn't pick up. His confusion turns to anger. The more he thinks about it, the more he feels like Amy should have kept him in the loop. He wonders if this is her way of getting back at him for their most recent fight. It's possible she just went somewhere to clear her head though. Amy often goes on long drives when she gets frustrated. 
but she usually does that alone. She never takes Timothy. Jim calls Amy a few more times, but she still doesn't pick up. He calls her sister Kara too, but she hasn't heard from Amy either. As more hours pass, Jim starts to feel like something has to be wrong. And that feeling only gets worse when he gets home and notices. Amy hasn't been taking her pills. Amy is prescribed antidepressants, but the bottles in the medicine cabinet are full. It looks like she hasn't been taking them for a while. According to Brian Smith's reporting for Chicago Magazine, this isn't a complete surprise. Amy had stopped taking her meds without consulting a doctor before. According to Jim, anytime she did, she experienced pretty severe mood swings. So naturally, Jim's alarm bells start ringing, loudly. For reasons he can't explain, Amy has taken their son out of school without telling him, stopped picking up her phone, and seems to be off her medication. Once evening hits with no word from his wife, Jim calls the police to see what he should do. Because Amy is a custodial parent, they suggest waiting 24 hours before filing a missing persons report. Now, if Amy had been a non-custodial parent, the process might have looked different, but she was a primary caretaker in a marriage that wasn't separated. The school administrators who released Timothy knew Amy just as well as they knew Jim. There was trust there. It shouldn't have been cause for alarm that a mother picked her son up from school. Jim waits the 24 hours. Then on Thursday, he gets back in touch with law enforcement. Two officers from the Aurora PD arrive at his work to help him file the missing person report. Jim gives police all the information he has and passes along a photo for their file. It's of Amy and Timothy together at Chuck E. Cheese. There's not much else he can do other than hope Amy will call him back. Then on Friday, May 13th, two days since Timothy and Amy were last seen, the radio silence breaks. Amy gets in touch with her mother. I don't know what words are exchanged, but the conversation seems to put Amy's mom at ease. She quickly tells the rest of the family that everything is fine, but later, Amy calls Jim's brother Chuck and he isn't quite so convinced. During their phone call, Chuck can hear Timothy in the background. He even speaks to his nephew on the phone at one point. As far as Chuck can tell, Timothy seems normal. There's no major red flags there. But Amy's attitude is more concerning. When Chuck encourages Amy to call her husband, she reportedly tells him, quote, Tim is my son and I can do what I want. Chuck tells Jim all this. And at this point, Jim's definitely concerned, but he still doesn't think his son is in danger. He doesn't believe Amy is capable of hurting their son. He trusts her. Sure, she's acting unusual and erratic, but Jim's mind doesn't leap to the worst case scenarios. He just wants to know where Amy is and why she won't come home. So he keeps calling her again and again. She never picks up. Saturday, May 14th marks three days since Amy picked Timothy up from school. Jim still hasn't gotten any word from his wife, but that morning the police show up at his house. They break some news to him that closes one door and opens a thousand others. They found Amy. She's dead. And they have no idea where Timothy is. It's been said that art is in the eye of the beholder. But what about greed or chaos? 
Hi, it's Richard from the Spotify original from Parcast, Unexplained Mysteries. This September, join us as we comb through the clues of some of the greatest art mysteries of all time. The Lost Da Vinci, the fake Rothko, the real identity of Banksy. If you've never listened to Unexplained Mysteries before, there's no better time to dive in than with this fantastic five-part special. You can also find hundreds of other mystifying stories and new episodes each week by following Unexplained Mysteries free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Aurora police find Amy Fry Pitson's body on Saturday, May 14th, 2011. An investigation into her death begins immediately. Investigators start by mapping out the three final days of her life. They have a lot of information at their disposal. Cell phone records, credit card statements, surveillance videos, and toll receipts from Amy's iPass, which is an electronic toll payment system in Illinois. The data allows investigators to track Amy's movements along major highways. Altogether, authorities are able to reconstruct a comprehensive picture of Amy's whereabouts from the day she and Timothy left to the day she died. This is what they learn. After Jim dropped Amy off for work around 8 a.m. that Wednesday, Amy didn't go inside. She immediately walked home, got her Ford Expedition, and drove back to Timothy's school. She arrived there at 8.15 a.m. She told the front desk attendant there was a family emergency and she needed to take Timothy home. She didn't elaborate any further than that. Around 8.35 a.m., Amy and Timothy walked out of the school together. From there, they drove east for about an hour and a half before stopping at an auto repair shop in LaGrange, a nearby town. Jim later theorized that this was because the automator in Amy's car was going out and she wanted it fixed. If true, this may suggest Amy was planning to take a long trip. According to a report by Chicago Magazine, Amy and Timothy spent a few hours at the nearby Brookfield Zoo and then picked up her car at the shop and continued north. They stopped for the night at the Key Lime Cove Water Resort, which put them about 65 miles away from Aurora. The next day, Thursday, they kept heading north. Amy made a few stops for gas. At one convenience store, she bought Timothy some clothes, a toy car, and a craft kit. That night, Amy and Timothy stayed at Kalahari Resort, an indoor water park and hotel about four hours away from Aurora. They left the resort the following morning at 10.10 a.m. Around 12.30 p.m. on Friday, Amy finally called her friends and family. This is when she spoke to her mother, and Chuck talked to Timothy on the phone. According to her phone records, Amy also tried to reach Jim, twice, but for whatever reason, her calls didn't go through. We'll never know why Amy called Jim back or what she would have told him, but records indicate that she was near Sterling, Illinois when she placed those calls. And Sterling is only about 80 miles away from Aurora, meaning she was headed back in the direction towards home. 
Then, around 2 p.m. on Friday, Amy turned off her cell phone and ditched it on the side of the road. She went off the grid for close to six hours. Nobody knows what happened. It's this time period that people still keep coming back to. A moment with a clear before and after. Before Amy got rid of her phone, she had Timothy with her. Afterward, she didn't. At 7.25 p.m., surveillance cameras caught Amy at a dollar store in Winnebago, Illinois. She was alone, no signs of Timothy. From there, she went to a nearby grocery store to buy stationery and writing supplies. Then she drove eight miles to a hotel in Rockford, Illinois. She checked in sometime between 10 and 11.15 p.m. According to Chicago Magazine, once inside her hotel room, Amy wrote three letters. Authorities found one of them in the motel. The specific contents have never been released to the public, but it reportedly relayed two messages. First, Timothy was being looked after by someone. And second, no one would ever find him. As for the other two letters, Amy sent one to her mom and the other to the friend she traveled to the Bahamas with. Both arrived the day after Amy was found dead. I want to read part of the note she wrote to her mother because I think it's an important piece of the puzzle. It's one of those pieces of evidence that offer a glimpse into why Amy made the decision she did. And importantly, it's in her own words. She wrote, I have always felt apart from everything. Tim helped with that for a while. And maybe if Jim and I had been better, I would have been okay. But everything just fell apart. And this time there were just too many pieces to pick up again. I can't take the chance of Jim hurting Tim because of my choices. So I've taken him somewhere safe. He will be well cared for. And he says he loves you. That night in the motel, Amy died by suicide. The next day, around 12.30 p.m., a housekeeper found Amy's body. Once authorities were notified, investigators descended on the motel. At the scene, police found a box cutter, a bottle of triaminic cough medicine, Timothy's identification card, and the letter Amy left behind. They didn't find any of Timothy's clothes, his toys, or his Spider-Man backpack. Because they weren't in the room, investigators wondered whether they may still be with Timothy. They hoped he was somewhere nearby. But when they searched Amy's car in the motel parking lot, they found blood in the back seat. Tess confirmed it was Timothy's. It's a terrifying situation. Amy is dead. Timothy is missing. And police found his blood in Amy's car. This is the point when detectives go to the Pitsons' home and tell a stunned Jim what they found out. They assure him they're still looking for Timothy and will contact him as soon as they know more. To try to figure out where Amy might have taken their son, investigators test some soil found under her car, and it's amazing how much they're able to learn from some dirt. The sample suggests that Amy most likely drove onto a gravel shoulder and backed into a field containing Queen Anne's lace and black mustard. Police conclude that the car was in North Central or Northwest Illinois at the time, but they can't get more specific than that. Next, law enforcement searches a swath of land near Sterling, where Amy made the phone calls to her family. They bring all-terrain vehicles to scour undeveloped areas and bloodhounds to track Timothy's scent. Pictures of Timothy are plastered along the route he drove with his mom. The community takes action too. 
eight days after Timothy disappeared with his mother, about 70 volunteers comb the Sterling area and nearby Rock Falls. But they don't find anything. The following week, with all this fear and uncertainty in the background, Amy is laid to rest. Her wake is crowded. Loved ones and mourners attend. And so does the press. The headlines have been dramatic. A mother dead, her son missing. The confusion and lack of answers give way to speculation. The media waits outside the church, hungry for a soundbite from anyone who knows Amy. Inside the church, mourners are in a state of utter disbelief. To most of them, none of it makes sense. Amy loved her son. They whisper to each other that the facts that they have been presented with can't be true. There must be more to the story. The police must have gotten it totally wrong. Amy's sister Kara overhears the speculation. She wants to feel the same way, but she can't. Those people don't know Amy the way she did. Her sister had secrets. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. After Amy Fry Pitson is found dead, many details of her private life get dragged out and into the public eye. According to Amy's sister, Kara, they had a tough childhood. Amy had a troubled relationship with their father. Without getting into specifics, Kara claims that he hurt her, and she struggled with painful memories. By the time Amy was 34, she'd been married and divorced three times. And as I mentioned earlier, she battled depression. She'd also apparently attempted suicide before and spent a week recovering in a psychiatric hospital. Amy met Jim at a party in 2002. The pair clicked immediately, but the honeymoon phase was short-lived. Not long after they met, Amy stopped taking her anxiety and depression medication and attempted suicide a second time. But Amy got back on her medication and she and Jim continued seeing one another. A year later, they had Timothy, and by almost every account, Timothy changed Amy's outlook on life. She put all her energy into being a mother, and she was good at it, loving. By 2008, though, Jim and Amy's marriage took a turn for the worse. After some financial troubles, Amy's depression worsened. Then, Jim found texts between Amy and her first ex-husband that suggested Amy planned to meet up with him while Jim was away. It was a huge betrayal of trust. Afterward, Jim told Amy to do what she wanted, but if they got a divorce, he told her he'd pursue full custody of their son, which according to Kara, instilled the fear of God in Amy because she felt certain that she couldn't win, especially given her history of self-harm. Now, in Amy's letter to her mother, she said she didn't want Jim to hurt their son, but as far as I could tell, there is no evidence to suggest Jim ever abused Timothy. Whether or not Amy's alleged fears were rooted in reality, I can't say. Her sister Kara has suggested that Amy wrote those words with the express purpose of hurting Jim. 
Kara's not the only family member who speculated about how Amy felt and why she made certain choices, but I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. Because the truth is, we can't know what was going through Amy's mind, and anecdotal evidence indicates she kept a lot hidden under the surface. After the media gets a hold of the story, investigators reveal another one of Amy's secrets. She had an email account that no one knew about. It doesn't yield any new or important information, but its existence raises eyebrows. Jim, for one, believes Amy may have used the account to communicate with the person she allegedly gave Timothy to. Amy actually had three computers, and police comb through all of them. They dig through her finances and phone records. They conduct dozens of interviews with friends, family, coworkers, acquaintances. They apparently don't find any communications from before Timothy went missing that they consider unusual. For three months after Amy's death, authorities continue receiving tips, but the leads never seem to pan out. And unfortunately, almost all the clues gathered from Amy's car and motel room have hit dead ends. But it's not all bad news. Turns out the blood in Amy's car may not be so incriminating after all. According to family members, Timothy often got nosebleeds. They believe the stain was old when investigators found it. So Timothy may be alive and well, like Amy said he was in her note. But for Jim, life doesn't get any easier. He finds it difficult to even look at the town where he, his wife, and his son once all lived together. He leaves Aurora within the year and moves back to his hometown in Iowa. There he waits for news, hoping his son will be found soon. As more time passes, the investigation to find Timothy slows, but doesn't stop. Even two years later, police are still receiving about five tips a month from people who believe they've seen him. Three years later, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children releases an age progression photo of Timothy, projecting what he might look like at age nine. It leads to some renewed interest in the case. The center updates the picture a year later, after Timothy's 10th birthday comes and goes without any more promising leads. Then, in April 2019, eight years after Timothy's disappearance, a conversation in Kentucky breathes a whole new life into his case. A young man is seen pacing at an intersection in Newport, Kentucky. He approaches a woman's car and begs for help. He says he's escaped a kidnapping and he wants to go home. He says his name is Timothy Pitson. At this point, Timothy would be 14. The young man looks like he could be Timothy. He's white, possibly in his teens, with a round face and brown hair. The media picks up on the story again. Headlines are hopeful. When Kara hears the news, she's elated. She starts thinking about what Timothy might need, who's going to pick him up. Jim is more restrained. His son went missing eight years ago, and there have been a lot of disappointments since. This could very well be another one. And Jim's right to be skeptical. Media outlets pulled the trigger on the story before investigators could even follow up, which is frankly irresponsible. Once officials do follow up, they tell Jim that they don't believe the young man is his son. He definitely carries himself like a 14-year-old, but he can't recall certain details about Timothy's life like the names of family pets, and he refuses to let officials take his fingerprints. DNA results confirm their suspicions. 
The young man is 23-year-old Brian Rainey. Rainey has a criminal record, multiple psychological disorders, and a history of impersonating others. It's yet another heartbreak. As of recording this episode, there haven't been any major updates in Timothy's case. It's been 11 years since he went missing. There are still no clues that point to where he went. And besides Amy's letters, there's nothing to suggest why she would have taken him somewhere where he would never be found. The prevailing theories about what happened to Timothy all heavily rely on speculation. There's just not enough evidence. Talking about them feels like circling a drain, hoping that someone notices something, anything that everyone else missed. And as unlikely as it may be, I'm going to circle that drain anyway, in the hopes that someone out there who is listening notices. Let's look at the day Timothy disappeared, reading Amy's actions as entirely premeditated, because some family members believe they were. Amy's mother says she was a meticulous planner. Her sister Kara believes she may have spent six months or more working out the logistics of Timothy's disappearance. Amy's three-day journey covered about 500 roundabout miles, which in this light would have been to throw people off her trail. And the calls to her family would have been to buy her more time and make sure no one tried to stop her. Ditching her phone made sure she couldn't be traced. More than five hours after she abandoned her cell phone, she reappeared at the family dollar in Winnebago without her son. It only takes about an hour to get between Sterling and Winnebago. So somewhere in those other five hours, Amy either hurt her child or gave him away to someone who's never come forward. Amy's iPass history supports this version of events. Records show that Amy visited Sterling twice in the months leading up to Timothy's abduction, once in February and another time in March. She reportedly didn't have any known connections to Sterling, no friends, nothing. So it's hard to explain those visits unless she was scoping out the area or meeting up with someone specific. According to Jim, Amy often claimed she had to stay late at work for meetings. He believes she could have used her secret email account and found someone on the internet who agreed to take Timothy, someone who's possibly raising him off the grid or overseas. That's one theory. Then there's the hard alternative, that the absence of any trace of Timothy means he's no longer with us, which is of course possible. But importantly, the Aurora PD continues to operate as though Timothy is alive and loved ones remain adamant that Amy would never have hurt her son. Some believe Amy was trying to protect Timothy, at least in her mind. She didn't want him to grow up with the stigmas of having a parent die by suicide. So in a way, she gave him up to give him a blank slate. It's the relationships in this story that make it such a hard pill to swallow. Why it's been felt so deeply by so many. Timothy wasn't plucked off the street by a stranger. He disappeared after being quietly removed from school by his mother. The mystery was so difficult to parse and the premise felt so close to home for so many. But I think this case captured the nation's attention the way it did because of what made it unique. The role Amy's mental health played. It allowed people to feel a sense of distance. Amy wasn't just a mother. She was an unwell mother who didn't and likely couldn't act in the best interest of her child. Suddenly, people could take a more voyeuristic stance. 
Now, I really wish Amy could have gotten the help she needed. There's no telling what would have been different. But I want to end this episode with a reminder that the premise is not unique. As I said at the top of this episode, the majority of Amber Alerts are the result of family abductions. But culturally, we rarely frame kidnappings in that context. We add distance. I probably don't have to tell you that when a woman goes missing, officials start by ruling out her partner, because statistically, they're the most likely culprit. It may be uncomfortable, but understanding the scope of any problem helps to better address individual cases. And yet, when a child goes missing, our minds jump to a stranger with a van, rather than the most likely culprit, someone they loved. For Timothy, I can only hope that whatever happened to him makes sense soon, and he can know his family's love again. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. This is an open case. If you have any information that could help locate Timothy, please contact Aurora Police at 630-256-5500 or tips at apd.aurora.il.us or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children hotline at 800-843-5678. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found the Chicago Magazine article, What Happened to Timothy Pitson by Brian Smith, incredibly helpful. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Kate Murdoch, edited by Karis Allen and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Freddie Beckley. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.